Welcome everyone to our latest edition of our NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz. On this edition of our show, we're going to discuss mental health, the Mental Health Advisory Group, and also hear from a leading student-athlete voice on mental health. We'll be joined by a lead sports psychologist from a high-profile university and the Director of Health Promotion on this topic at the NCAA. And now joining me, Carrie Wheelhouse. She is the Sports Science Institute Director of Health uh, Promotion, uh, joined the NCAA in June of 2022. And Dr. James Houle, he is the lead sports psychologist at The Ohio State University. Uh, Carrie, I want to start with you um, in talking about the Mental Health Advisory Group, and then we're going to peel back some layers of where we are uh, in the mental health fight uh, with student-athletes and in general. Uh, so let's first talk about uh, your vision of where you think the uh, Mental Health Advisory Group is and certainly can go. Sure. So the Mental Health Advisory Group is something that was created by the Committee on Competitive Safeguards and Medical Aspects of Sports, or CSMAS, um, in September of 2021. And it was created following the Diverse Student Athlete and Mental Health and Wellbeing Summit um, with the intent to revisit our current mental health best practices with the lens of looking at diverse student athlete populations. So including our student athletes of color, student athletes with disabilities, international student athletes, and LGBTQ student athletes as well. Um, and so the group is at the exciting point of convening coming up here in October uh, for its first meeting. Um, with, with work to be done, like I said, really revisiting our existing mental health best practices with that new lens and looking at our additional mental health materials and finding how we can best support our student athletes in promoting mental health and well-being moving forward uh, for them on campus and, and throughout their professional, excuse me, their, their athletic careers. Jamie, where do you see the advisory group's role? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think schools around the country membership uh, is clamoring for guidance. Uh, in the mental health space, um, I think the advisory group will be able to provide that. Uh, we, you know, to, to update the mental health best practices, uh, you know, it's just going to further give that specific guidance about uh, what what could be helpful in providing this information and these services to the student athletes. So, I mean, having the dedicated space and time and group uh, to address that is going to be really helpful. I think. So you both mentioned the word guidance, which I think is a critical word here. Uh, and, and this really happens in a lot of different uh, avenues and paths within the NCAA is that uh, a lot of times it is a guide. It is not a rule. It is not legislated. So how do you get, uh, and I know this is sort of all coming at you, Carrie, but how, how do you get to that point where you are guiding these institutions, but not mandating because the jurisdiction certainly just, it, it's not there. Yeah, so the legislation says that our member institutions need to provide uh, education and resources related to mental health, and that should be consistent with the mental health best practices. But knowing that our member institutions are in a variety of different locations, a variety of different sizes, and have lots of different kinds of access to resources, you know, it's, it's really hard to make one very specific thing that is a one-size-fits-all type of thing. Uh, and so these really are a guide on things that that should be um, opportunities to promote student, student athlete mental health and wellness, to provide access to licensed and qualified mental health providers, and to really have a game plan for 
how you get a student athlete to that licensed and qualified provider should that need arise, um, and early identification through screening. And so really it's, it's guidance on, on what kinds of things can be done. And then each member institution can figure out how that best fits within the resources um, and the location and geographic area that they're in. Jamie, how do you view it versus campus versus uh, national headquarters? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think um, one thing I've realized is, uh, I guess, selfishly at Ohio State, we're, you know, we're embarrassment of riches, you know, we have lots of providers and, and access and that kind of stuff. But I, I, I am aware of my colleagues around the country that don't or, or don't, you know, that, it, that they're trying to do the same thing that my group is here at Ohio State with far less resources. And that's, that's really, it can be scary at times because you know, it's like, how are we trying to help our students? Uh, mental health issues don't uh, care about boundaries. They don't care about borders or resources. They're present regardless. So uh, we just have to, I think the guidance will allow for the flexibility necessary at the inst individual institutions. So uh, again, I, you know, critical point in what you were just saying there, about the diversity of resources, logistical issues that some campuses that are in remote communities just don't have access to the personnel. Uh, during the course of the pandemic, telehealth has become the norm. Uh, for some student athletes, for some students, for some people in the population, it's become easier to stay at home and do telehealth. On the flip side for therapists, it has become something that they have embraced as well to be more conducive to their lives. And there is a difference between telehealth versus in-person therapy. Um, how do you ensure, and if both of you could chime in here, that the access to therapy is there regardless whether or not you have that personnel or the funding in-person versus and in addition to telehealth? And Carrie, you can jump in here and then uh, Jamie, I'd love you to piggyback off of that. Sure. Well, I think telehealth is one opportunity to increase access, but when we talk about access to care, you know, it, we're, we're really looking at lots of different things. It's, it's the physical proximity that a building may have. It's access through means like telehealth where you can access it when you aren't physically there or maybe don't want to physically be there in person. And access also comes in terms of comfort and being comfortable seeking out the environment and having an inviting or welcoming and inclusive space to do all those things. And so I think when we talk about access to care, you know, telehealth is certainly a component of it uh, that can be brought in as one tool to increase access, but there's lots of other pieces that go with that as well. Yeah, and I, I think the telehealth has been great. You know, I think it's it's been shown to be as effective as in-person um, uh, therapy and counseling. Uh, my, my mind goes to as well as like uh, when we talk about telehealth, we, we talk about still part of the consent to telehealth is where's your closest emergency room? You know, and, and we, we need to know that. And what, how stable is your internet? And, and, and do you have a private place to be able to meet? You know, we can't have your roommates in the background here, here doing homework, you know? So um, there's lots that go, go into it, uh, but it, it has bridged a gap, I think. For sure. You know, the other thing too, Jamie, is that uh, one size doesn't fit all. Uh, you need to really have a connection with either your therapist or your psychologist or your psychiatrist. Um, and one university may only have one person or two people. And if that person doesn't connect, then that's not going to work. How do you bridge that gap where, you know, University X says, hey, we've, we've added all these people, but you know what? It doesn't work for this individual. 
Uh, how do you work with those kind of issues, which I know have and will come up? Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. And, and, and you know, my bias being a sports psychologist is, you know, I, I really believe that the folks that can do the best work uh, in this field have an understanding of the athletic culture. And, and, um, and that, you know, so, so how, do, how do we get that? <clears throat> I'm on a huge kick right now and a couple organizations I'm part of are, are doing this as well as we need to do good training of folks in the mental health field about what athletic counseling, sports psychology, whatever, what that entails so that we can produce the amount of people necessary to, to seek the need that we're seeing, which is, is high. Um, because those misses in psychotherapy, for example, like uh, uh, feeling not understood, all the things you were referencing before can limit people's ability to get the help they need. So we need to train the professionals to be able to connect with the athletes and understand their culture or else they're going to miss in my opinion. Yeah. And I think Jamie, you used a great word with culture there too. I mean, the athletic culture is, is part of it, but each student also comes with their own uh, culture and identity as well. And so having culturally sensitive care and training in that space also is really important for the providers that are giving mental health care uh, because you know that, that also brings that welcoming or inclusive environment where students then feel safe and accepted, not just from the athletic uh, culture, but from whatever other individual cultures and identities they bring as well. You know, Jamie, the other thing too is, um, you know, the current state, the current uh, laws are that the licensed therapist, you know, if, if they, they can, they can be anywhere in the country, as long as they're licensed in that particular state. And let's say you are, you know, treating someone in the state of Ohio, and now that high school student goes and plays in California. Technically, you're not supposed to still treat that individual. So, you know, as you get these freshmen, these transfers that come on, they may have had a therapist or someone they've really worked with. And you've got to talk about your training and getting up to speed. How do you help that student athlete, you know, really get on board, even though they've been down a, you know, a path with, with another therapist or another sports psychologist or another psychiatrist? Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is about acclimating to wherever you are. You know, and, 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 and I, you know, I'll come back to this idea too that Carrie mentioned and we're talking about here is culture, right? So say, say you were at UC Berkeley and then you, and then you come to Ohio State. <laughs> this, is not, this is not Berkeley, you know? And so we, we need time to understand even the culture of what it means at the school we're at um, and what the expectations are and what your identities, to Carrie's point, what your identities look like, for example, in Ohio versus Berkeley. Um, you know, um, so th that means different. So we need to make time and space for those conversations to help with the transition, because regardless, it's always, you know, transition is never easy. Um, but when you add on the layer and layer and layer of different factors that are impacting that transition, it can get kind of complicated. You know, and that's, and I know it, it, you walk that fine line of privacy, Carrie, but in this transfer portal era, I think Jamie makes a great point here because we are seeing so much movement of student athletes from school to school, state to state. Uh, and, you know, you have to wonder like how much is being, you know, discussed about where is that student athlete in their mental health, you know, just bringing them to school X after they've been over here. Uh, and, you know, how will you help them assimilate into this new environment uh, if they're battling whatever uh, and need some guidance and help, 
Uh, and that seems to me like an area where the advisory group could sort of add some counsel uh, in how we deal with these transfers moving all over the country. Yeah, I, I think that's a great, great point. And, you know, there are many questions and opportunities for the advisory group to uh, visit some of these more challenging topics that relate to that. And, you know, it's it's during transfer, it's during travel for, you know, a game or a match or whatever they have going on. And uh, I think one of the questions for that advisory group to, to bring about is, is the network. And right now there's recommendations for procedures for referral within each, each institution and for each institution to have some kind of network with other providers in that area or community. But, you know, another, another opportunity to raise is what does that network look like when we're talking about transfers, transfers or travel as well? So you raise a great point there uh, and part of the work that we will be discussing in the upcoming, in the upcoming months. And you know, you know what that makes me think of too is during COVID, uh, when, you know, if you were to travel and then to test positive at that time, you had to stay where you were. And I remember particularly in the Big Ten, we talked about, okay, we have our Big Ten mental health cabinet, we have our providers, who is going to be able to cover if that were to happen? If somebody has to stay there for 14 days, for example, who's going to check in with that person because of cross state line boundaries and all this and where are the hospitals so that COVID in that way forced our hand to be able to like reach across the, the boundaries here and try to figure out how we can network to take care of the athletes you know the other thing too uh jamie and carrie is another thing that has added plenty of stressors while it might be great on the nal uh you know platform and the potential to earn more money there's also a lot of pressure in that that can build up and create anxiety to pile on to everything else that's going on in a student athlete's life. Uh, you know, you're on the ground there, Jamie, and at a place like the Ohio State, where there are plenty of opportunities for that. How much has that potentially been something else that's another challenge of, of helping these student athletes balance their life and the pressures of real world, you know, financial pressures that they're gonna have to live up to in the, as they get into that space? Um, we have to remind the student athletes of that. Uh, remember, it's not just pure cash here. We have to pay taxes on it. Uh, so I think it's another level. I, I think it's going to continue to grow and develop about how it potentially could affect folks' mental health. But more than ever, more than ever before in history, they have to be more focused on time management and self-care and things that they don't stress themselves even thinner than they already are. Yeah, and I think another thing that that comes with that too is this kind of building a sense of identity or having a brand and also is that going to be something that um, other people uh, approve of or agree with and there's certainly more out there now in the world of social media in terms of people responding or providing their feelings and um, language back to student athletes, whether that's on NIL things, whether that's on their performance um, in a particular game. And so I think that brings another level and layer as well. And certainly mental health and well-being is so intertwined with social interactions and our social environment in that regard that it, again, it brings another layer of complexity in thinking about this. And again, work that will continue to be looked at and, and thought about by the mental health advisory group moving forward. You know, earlier we talked about making sure that the, whoever is hired in these positions is well-versed in the student athlete experience. Uh, I'm curious where things stand, whether it's the advisory group or on the ground there at a place like the Ohio State University on the coaches, the head, the assistant, uh, the grad assistants of two things. A, recognizing 
when someone doesn't feel okay and it's okay not to be okay and allow them and empower them to go seek help in some form or fashion. And then if you could add onto this, Jamie, and then, and then Carrie, the staff themselves. Uh, I've talked to, you know, a number of coaches who, you know, were in an era where if they don't got it today, maybe it's okay that I don't show up because me not having it and lashing out at these players at this practice, because something else is going on in my life is going to do no one any good. And so feeling comfortable with yourself to take that break with your boss to say, you know what? I can't come to practice today. I need a break. Um, Where's the training in that with the coaches to recognize it and actually for themselves? Well, I mean, again, more than ever, I think we're starting to see people as actual people and the coaches are people and the athletes are people and they're not just robots that can do uh, unbelievable things and not be tired and all these things and not have mental health issues. So, I mean, I think part of it is modeling from the coach level down that it actually, that modeling of healthy behavior actually provides permission to the student athletes um, to be people too. You know, I mean, I, I hate to be too biased here, but Ryan Day is a great example of that. Uh, his leadership in the mental health space shows that, you know, um, you know, I've been through things in my life. I, I, I've sought help when I needed to. I have the conversation. Um, and, and when I get the help, I, I, I'll, I'll take the help, you know, and, and so that provides top-down messaging that allows the athletes to get the help. But I mean, the, the other thing I'll say is, you know, we're continuing to build on coach education. And I think that's extremely necessary. I was in staff meeting today and we talked about that very thing about suicide uh, prevention training for our coaches. Um, but it has to not be a one hour thing. It needs to be an ongoing discussion. Um, so again, guidance that probably can come from the mental health committee, uh, advisory committee about uh, uh, coach education. Yeah, and I, I, I'd agree with a lot of things that, that Jamie just said. I mean, we have some educational resources on the NCAA mental health webpage about recognition of signs and symptoms, how coaches can converse back and forth with student athletes in a way that helps facilitate and invite open and honest and transparent conversations. Um, but, but I also agree with Jamie that you know, just normalizing it by modeling behavior is something that's important too. And, and the more we can normalize having conversations about mental health, having conversations about accessing and, and seeking mental health care and treatment um, and, and just treating it in the same fashion we may discuss that I got an injury with a sprained ankle or something like that. The more those conversations can be normalized, uh, I think at, at coach levels, it's gonna help invite the ability for student athletes to feel comfortable in that space too. NCAA does have a vast resource, a list of resources, you know, and, and, and what it's something we deal with here too is we can have all the resources in the world, but if people can't, if people don't use them for whatever reason, then, you know, that's an issue, right? And so, so we, how, how do we promote it? How do we get people to use it on a regular basis? That can be part of it too. I mean, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. So much more to discuss. Both of you doing tremendous work. Um, I love the fact that we have addressed this issue, highlighted it uh, on our social series over the last couple of years, and we will continue to do so. And as always, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. And now joining me, Megan Cook. She is a former Colorado College cross country and track runner. 
Uh, she's still currently, at least until January, the chair of the Division Three Student Athlete Advisory Committee, better known as SAC. Um, Megan, let's, before we get into sort of what you're doing in your life now, I just want to get a little bit of a general 30,000 foot view. Um, this issue of mental health is not going away. In fact, I think more than anything, in a good way, it has become mainstream where we can talk about it. And it's okay to say, you know, you're seeking therapy, you go to a therapist, you're on medication, whatever it is, it's okay to discuss it, which is great news that it is out in the public space right now. But that also means there's a lot of work to do uh, in the mental health department within the student athlete world in the general population. But since we last spoke, you are a repeat guest, which we really appreciate. Um, and we're in that post-pandemic era of somewhat normal, uh, getting back to normalcy. Where, where do you think we are in the student athlete world as much as you can tell uh, as still a member of SAC and, and just recently finishing your athletic career? Andy, I think you make a lot of great points. I think when we talk about how mental health has kind of become a buzzword, we're seeing it at every level from the campus to association-wide conversations. And like you mentioned, I think that is critically important because I think a lot of people who previously, due to how they were raised or the communities they were raised in and what was normalized as far as talking about mental health, I think they're seeing it talked about a lot more. And I think that's really important when we think about people who might need help and learning about the ways in which they could receive that help, learning about the different options and avenues and how those resources might be accessible. And I think a big reason we're seeing that is because when we went through this pandemic, so many people got cut off from the main things in their life that fulfill them, bring them joy, stabilize them, you know, all of these things. And we saw this mass event where student athletes were no longer able to participate in their sports. So many athletes rely on athletics as a way to find that confidence, that stability. And so everyone stopped that, you know, and we had this mass event where everyone was kind of lost. And I think that was a huge part in why we've had so many of these conversations about mental health recently, because all of a sudden we were in a mental health emergency as well as a national health emergency due to the virus. So when we talk about where we're at right now, as you mentioned, we're going back to normal in a lot of ways, but we haven't forgotten. And let me tell you, the student athletes have not forgotten those conversations we've had about mental health and the promises that were made, the resources that were provided during the pandemic. No, they don't need to stop. They need to continue to get better because we need to continue to learn what is the variety of situations that we're seeing as far as the mental health emergencies that are going on you know, every day in student athletes' lives? And how can we as an association make a commitment to mental health being included in mainstream sport conversation? Because at the end of the day, we all know when an athlete puts on a jersey, they are still a person. And that means whether they have a sprained ankle or they're fighting anxiety and depression, that whole person is going to be the one that's out there on the field playing. Playing a sport does not stop or remedy those mental health issues. It might help you cope, but it doesn't stop them. And a lot of times the pressure of sport can actually make those mental health situations worse because there is so much pressure. So 
frankly, I can't give you a direct answer of this is where we are, you know, on my progress meter. But I think, as you mentioned, it's really important. The mental health is still being talked about. I'm very glad we're still talking about it, even though we're moving a little bit further from those first cases of COVID. But frankly, we have so far to go because we made a lot of promises during COVID. And I'm really happy about that. But that means we need to keep putting in the work to improve this space. So Megan, um, you know, one of the things that came up out of this uh, was access to mental health professionals and not putting it on uh, strictly the athletic trainer, um, you know, a guidance counselor, a coach, a peer. Uh, and one thing that's happened out of, the, out of the pandemic is we are seeing more and more therapists leaning in the telehealth world for whatever reason. Maybe it's easier for them because they have children, they wanna work at home, but that access now cannot, can no longer be an excuse for an athletic department, especially one in D3, D2, D1, where you're in a remote location where there may not be very mental health uh, therapists um, you know, in that community. The fact that there can be telehealth and if your state allows it within the state or even to work with someone out of the state, and obviously there are different laws in different states on telehealth. Um, so to that point, how critical from the SAC perspective is it to keep pushing that you can't have the response from the university be, well, budget, we can't hire a therapist, um, that it doesn't have to be physically someone in front of you, that it can be telehealth to at least bridge that gap until maybe you can get to an in-person therapy session. I think that SAC is really emphasizing the point that you're making, which is we're done with excuses. We're done with everyone saying we recognize this is a problem, but, and we think that there needs to be creative problem solving because while you're right, telehealth is becoming more of an option. There are a whole new set of conversations that need to be had around telehealth surround, you know, how do we create a safe space? For example, me on this Zoom call right now, I defined a separate room to go into for this conversation. If I was on a telehealth appointment, I would need to make sure I feel safe disclosing some of the things I may be going through. I have a private space. If I live in a freshman dorm with two other roommates, my campus needs to provide me with a space where I can go and have that conversation and have that confidentiality, have that safe space. Along with that, it's not only access, but it's quality access. As anyone who's ever seen a mental health professional knows, there are certain mental health professionals you click with and certain ones you don't. And there are a lot of factors that go into that. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that mental health is an extremely personal topic, as well as you know different strategies and philosophies related to mental health. Therapists aren't cookie cutter, and I think they would actually appreciate me saying that. Um, but I think because of that, we need to realize that it can't just be, here's our one therapist option. Yes. And if that doesn't work for you, sorry, you're out of luck. This access needs to be something where we understand individual student athletes have individual problems that they are trying to face and they need a team that's willing to work with them and find that right match. Because frankly, it's not good enough anymore. And SAC is really emphasizing this. It's not good enough anymore to say, here, we handed you a document, you know, telling you to get more rest and time managed. So you're not as stressed with school. You should be better. You know, here's one link to one therapist. 
an appointment is six weeks out, there needs to be this breadth of access as well. And so one thing that SAC is really emphasizing is this creative problem solving. And also, frankly, looking at, you know, what is the difference between a therapist and a sports psychologist? What is the emphasis our coaches are putting on? This is a conversation that was had on my campus about where do we divert our budget? You know, do we need a sports psychologist? Do we need uh, a therapist? Do we just create relationships within the community for crisis situations? Because again, there are so many different flavors of mental health professionals that deal with different situations. And having that network, I think is really important because if a student comes into a therapy session and presents a crisis-like problem over telehealth, what is the plan to get that student immediate help in case their life or their well-being was in immediate danger? Those connections need to be made as well as the underlying and widespread support. Yeah, you know, two points that you just raised that I think are so critical, especially in the student athlete space. One, um, you need to connect and you could go through five, six therapists, male, female, before you feel a connection. Um, and that's critical because you're not going to open up unless you feel that person, you know, has an understanding of what your problems are. That's number one. So a lot of universities don't have the, you know, the breadth of, of therapists for you to sort of go through. That's an issue. And then number two, eating disorders, um, which is a critical issue right now uh, in the student athlete space. And not every therapist is a specialist in eating disorders. And so that's where another layer has to be peeled back and say, okay, how many therapists do we have that specialize in eating disorders? Because that affects this population. Uh, so these are other issues, you know, that the, 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 the groups that you're talking to have to get. And I'm curious, has that come up? And how, if so, how have they responded? I think personally, for me, my experience has been most focused on my campus level. I graduated in May, but I was engaged in these conversations up until the very end. And I'm, you know, talking to my athletic director in just a few weekends to talk about the status of things this year. Um, and so I think I can speak from that campus experience in terms of what that conversation looks like. And at the end of the day, as you mentioned, a lot of things come down to a budgetary concern. You know, they're saying, where can we make the most impact? And the question that I was trying to pose was first of all how are we putting a price tag on this health issue you know and we need to make sure that correct budget is allotted i understand budgets can be different across schools and across campuses in the association but inevitably again it's that creative problem solving and so where can we develop relationships within our community, within the telehealth community or partnerships? How can we get feedback from students? Because frankly, the student population on my campus, the student athlete population, it's diverse enough on my campus, let alone compared to, you know, some big D1 school. And so for, it needs to be a constant relationship of feedback being given from students and really listening to what the students are asking for in an anonymous setting where students feel safe, genuinely saying what they need. So I can talk about the conversations that have had happened on my campus and the way, you know, I've gone to my head athletic trainer and said, tell me the perspective you're coming from and I'll tell you, you know, the pulse that I'm taking on our student athlete population on my mental health as a student athlete going through some of the everyday stressors and let's try to figure out a way that we can make this plan. So after I had those conversations in our most recent SAC meeting, we brought up this conversation of how does 
each of our SAC members go back to their campus and have these conversations. Then how do we inform student athletes across the association on what they should expect of their campuses according to membership within the association? Because there are best practices currently out there that say student athletes should be able to expect X, Y, Z from their campuses. Does every campus do that? The association doesn't have the capacity to monitor that on every campus. So frankly, we're trying to find ways to empower individual student athletes to go to their athletic directors and have this structured conversation about, you know, are these resources available but not well communicated to student athletes? Do these resources need to be revisited? Is there a, a disconnect in communication? Because frankly, I don't think a lot of times it's malintent that is leading to a failure of these resources to be provided in the capacity that they're needed. I think instead it's a failure along communication lines. It's a failure of looking at policies because we've been, as you mentioned before, reopening since COVID. There's been so many things we've been logistically planning, but if mental health falls on the back burner, that's where we end up in crisis situations. That's where we end up with burnout and harm to student athletes. And I know that strayed a little bit from your, your initial point, but I think frankly, this needs to be that two-way street of communication and it needs to be on a campus to campus basis with kind of that oversight from the association being, we as the NCAA commit to having mental health be a priority. Um, and here are some ways we can model that. Here are conversations that need to be had. Here's the expectation, just like how we expect physical health to be supported and providers to be accessible to all of our athletes. You know, and look, you know, it does take a village, but at the same time, everyone needs to be uh, to sort of, you know, stay in your lane a little bit. And and I don't think it's fair to athletic trainers, you know, sort of it, it's said sometimes, oh, they're part counselor therapist because it's more of an intimate setting because you're getting taped and you can you know unload on uh, on the athletic trainer. It's more of a comfortable setting away from the coaching staff. But that athletic trainer, nine times out of 10, is not trained to deal with your issues. Um, and they can certainly, you know, see that something's going on, they can refer, but that's not fair to them. And that's another critical point of making sure athletic directors and up the food chain fully grasp how critical this is. You do not want to get to a tragic situation and then say, oh, we should have done something. We should have had more in place uh, before something happens. Uh, Megan, I love talking to you about this topic and clearly you are passionate about it. Uh, you are a leader in this space. You did just graduate. What are you doing now? So after graduating in May, I actually moved across the country. I'm living in Maryland now, and I started a job as a post-baccalaureate clinical research fellow. So that means I'm one step closer to my ultimate ambitions of becoming a physician and going to medical school. Uh, uh, and right now that means I get to work with patients every day and analyze data and work on a condition called eosinophilia, which is actually an immune related disorder um, that is affects a fairly small portion of the population, but it has a huge impact on the lives that it does impact. So I get to work with those patients and they're truly wonderful patients. And I get to help hopefully push forward kind of the scientific envelope for treatment for those patient patients. Well, clearly you're going to do great things and help more, but continue to help these student athletes because uh, you are an important voice on this topic. Stay connected. We really appreciate everything that you are doing and uh, we hope you come back on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And a thank you again to all our guests that joined us here on our NCAA social series. And a reminder, you can always go to NCAA.org 
slash social series, where all our social series are archived. Thanks for watching, everyone.